Welcome to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We're talking about disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. On this episode of the show, the Executive Director of the UVM Center on Disability and Community Inclusion, Jesse Souter, is joined by University of Vermont Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Education, Michael F. Giangreco. Giangreco shares memories, observations, and advice from more than 30 years of service to the UVM Center on Disability and Community Inclusion. Dr. Gian Greco is a widely published and respected innovator in the field of special education, as well as being the author of the much-loved cartoon series, Absurdities and Realities in Special Education. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Jesse Souter. I'm the Executive Director of the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm really excited to be doing a podcast with Michael Jengreco. Michael, you are my mentor, uh, colleague, and friend, um, and also uh, University of Vermont uh, Distinguished Professor uh, Emeritus uh, in Special Education. Uh, that's still hard to say because we worked together here for so long and you have retired. Um, so thank you uh, for doing this as a quick visual description. Um, so I'm a white man in my 50s uh, with no hair, uh, some facial hair turning gray, and I'm wearing a pink striped shirt. Uh, and uh, Michael, I think distinguished professor is almost a, a good enough description, but you are a white man, a little bit older, uh, a little more hair. You're wearing brown uh, glasses uh, and a red sweater over a blue white striped shirt. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so when I thought about sort of what we could talk about, because we've talked uh, with each other for a long time, um, we met, uh, I think, when I was a graduate student here, here at the center. And, and I always have to look at that wall over there because it's my, it's my internship diploma. And it reminds me that my internship was in 2003. And so that must mean I met you the year before that. Because uh, that's when that's when I left, and you were a big reason that I wanted to come back. So I went to graduate school here. Uh, we met during one of my placements here at the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion, and it was you and Ruth Hamilton and a few other people that just sort of introduced me to the heart and soul of of this work, uh, community inclusion. And so I wanted to come back immediately. So I did my internship. And, and I, I talked to Ruth and I said, is there any, can I come back please? Is there anything I can do at the, at the center? And, uh, and then you and I started working together more formally, not long after that. Right, it was actually, um, I was asked to serve as your mentor mm -hmm. through the mentoring program. Oh, that's right, yeah. And then I realized very quickly how talented you were and I wanted you working on projects with me. Oh. <laughs> So, I mean, so this is exactly why I was happy that you wanted to do this, because uh, you, you always make me feel so good about myself <laughs> whenever we talk. So uh, it's, it's all just an excuse uh, for, for, for more of that. We've had many good years of collaboration and friendship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, what I was thinking about, what we could talk about, I just thought about all of our conversations uh, that we've had since we met. And 
not only did, you know did you support me as a as a mentor professionally uh, in terms of the research, but again that heart and soul aspects of the job is something that was really absent from all of my training uh, in clinical psychology and, and through graduate school. It was much more about, you know, we do the research to come up with the best interventions and then the goal is to just get those interventions to as many people as we can. That was the whole model. That was, that was the approach. And uh, when I think about some of the, the first conversations we had, and I'd love you to talk about this a little bit, which is you got into this area, as, as I recall, not because research was the solution uh, for everything. That's not how you improve the world. Yeah, uh, through research. Yeah. So can so I, I'd like to talk about kind of your journey okay. a, a little bit. So if we could kind of start there as so how you got into working with people with disabilities, got into schools, because mm -hmm. uh, I always love hearing this part. I got into it by accident. Um, this is why I love it. As a, as, a, as a student in high school, I was uh, at best a marginal, maybe B minus student in high school. I, my, my high school teachers would be shocked to learn that I got a PhD. Uh, did you tell any of them? Uh, no, I don't think I ever did tell any of my high school teachers that. But um, b the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, I was visiting some friends outside of Pittsburgh, a little place called Murraysville, Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, one day when I was there, they said, oh, come with us, we're volunteering at this day camp. And they never thought to mention to me that it was a camp for students, uh, children with and youth with intellectual disability. Right. Um, so when I arrived there, they had, uh, kind of planned things that they were scheduled to do. And they were like, oh, just like go here and like play with these kids. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know what, what to do um, because, you know, as a kid growing up in the 1950s and 1960s, kids with disabilities were not around. Right. Um, I mean, the, the strong, I have three strong memories from childhood of interacting with people that had pretty significant disabilities. One was a little girl who lived on our block, um, who I know used a wheelchair for mobility, and I'm pretty sure she was nonverbal. And a, a bus came and picked her up every day and took her to some place that right. I don't know where it went. And her parents, um, you know, took her on walks, but none of us knew her. Um, that was pretty common. I also remember that one of my mother's friends um, had a child at the time who was a teenager who had very severe cerebral palsy. I didn't know it was cerebral palsy at the time. Um, and I remember being at their house and um, I have this distinct image of his mother feeding him mm -hmm. a tuna fish sandwich, you know. Um, and I'd never encountered somebody with that level of disability before. And the third was... Uh, I remember in our elementary school, we had a classroom of kids who people made fun of. I remember that. Um, who And one of the reasons was because they weren't our age. They were all older. You know, they were kids old enough to have a five o'clock shadow. Yeah. Um, and, but again, they, they didn't eat in the cafeteria at the same time that we did. They were very segregated from us. 
uh, we just didn't know them. And so disability had never really been on my radar. But that day at the summer camp, um, it, it felt very natural to me, like just interacting with, with people that, in this case, it was people with primarily intellectual disability. And I had fun, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I thought, I, I didn't know what I was going to college for. I didn't have a profession in mind. Right. And I thought, you know what? I could do this. I, maybe I'll go to school for special education. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And um, my first semester, um, or actually it was my second semester in college, I ran into an old, um, an old uh, high school friend who was working at a summer camp, um, a residential summer camp called Cradle Beach Camp outside okay. of south of Buffalo in Angola, New York. And she encouraged me to apply. And that was one of the most important decisions I ever made in my life because Cradle Beach um, has been around since 1888. It first served, um, its first was considered what was called a fresh air mission, right. which was um, to bring economically disadvantaged inner city children to the country mm -hmm. to try to put some weight on them and give them some fresh air. Yeah. Um, and then after World War II, they started including uh, children with disabilities, first separately at a separate time. But then with just in a, within a few years uh, following World War II, they started uh, integrating children with disabilities um, and uh, their non-disabled peers at the camp. And it was very unique, um, and it still is unique today in terms of uh, um, a place where kids with and without disabilities go to camp together. Yeah. And the one downside of it, so to speak, is the fact that it's a bit out of proportion in terms sure. of there's mm -hmm. proportionally more children with various disabilities um, than there are kids without disabilities. It, you know, it's about half and half, and that's kind of out of proportion to what you'd see in the real world. But one of the things that it did, it did two things for me. One was it exposed me to an enormous range of different types of physical, intellectual, emotional, sensory disabilities. But the but the more important part, and I did this for seven summers during college oh, wow. and, then, uh, and then my early teaching career, was that I was living in community with people with disabilities. And we also mm -hmm. had a lot of uh, counselors and staff right. who had disabilities of various sorts. Mm -hmm. Um, the guy who ran the arts and crafts program had severe cerebral palsy. You know, um, we had counselors who were deaf, counselors who were blind, um, counselors that had uh, different uh, physical or you know, orthopedic disabilities. Um, so there were, it was just an amazing kind of mix of, of people. And we were together 24 seven for uh, our, our camp sessions for two weeks at a time. There were, there were um, 200 kids at the camp at oh, one so time. really big, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like 100 um, staff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we ate together and, you know, we slept in cabins together and we camped together. And our whole, our whole purpose 
was having fun, right. you know, safely. It was camp. It was camp. Yeah. We were do and anything that any other kid could do, any kid with a disability could do. And we just thought, and none of us were trained, mm -hmm. right? Really. Right. Um, and there was a little bit of orientation, but it was really more of a mindset. Like these are kids and we're going to do fun kid things and right. we're going to do them all together. And, and if there's some barrier in the way, we'll figure out a way to, to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it was grand. Uh, I mean, it was a grand time and it was probably one of the most meaningful things in terms of, you know, you mentioned kind of the heart and soul because you never, you never can, um, know exactly what it's like to be the parent of a child that has a severe disability or some kind of really intensive need, but you get a tiny glimpse of it when you're living in a residential situation. Right. Because, you know, for kids that needed it, we were uh, dressing them, we were changing diapers, we were feeding kids, we were, you know, carrying them from their wheelchairs into the pool, um, we were doing everything that a parent would do. We were up in the middle of the night if somebody woke up with a nightmare, mm -hmm. you know? And so you got a small glimpse of that. But the cool thing about the socialization of it was we weren't there to be their teacher. We weren't there right. to be their counselor. We were there to have fun together. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just created a, a I, I think in many ways it kind of inoculated me from some of the professional socialization that puts professionals here right. and people with disabilities mm -hmm. here. I mean, there certainly is always a power imbalance when you've got a child and an adult, a camper and a counselor, mm -hmm. but it's different than kind of professional socialization. Right. So that was super influential. And then one of the people that worked at, at the camp worked at, uh, it was actually a married couple at the time, they worked in the only group home that was available. Remember, this is the mid-1970s. Deinstitutionalization is just getting started. Right. And um, group homes were like brand new. There was one in Western New York, uh, Granger Place on the west side of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. I volunteered there and did some, um, some internship uh, uh, credits there. And then I ended up getting a job. And the last two and a half years I was in college, I was working full time oh, wow. uh, at a group home mm -hmm. for adults with um, developmental disabilities, um, mostly those with intellectual, all, all of them had intellectual disabilities. Some of them had other disabilities as well. And about how big was the group home? Like how uh, there many people were, were living there? There were six residents in the group home. And, you know, today we have, um, you know, kind of more natural options than mm -hmm. congregating people in group homes. But at the time, it was kind of an innovation. Yeah. And well, as opposed to a big institution. Right. Yeah. And I was uh, originally I was working the uh, eleven to seven shift. Yep. So, but I was really I was showing up at like at dinner time. I was having dinner with the residents, hanging around in the evening, and doing my homework. And then um, I was responsible to be there overnight and in the morning to get them uh, making their breakfast and off to mm -hmm. um, off to work or day programs that they were in. And you know, again, it was the goal was helping people live their life, yeah. you know, and 
None of us knew what we were doing. I mean, they mm -hmm. hired a 19-year-old kid. <laughs> you know, that, that gives you an idea of how devalued, yeah. you know, like a 19-year-old kid that is still in college could get a job doing this. I mean, those are the exact same options that were options for me in, in, in graduate school and mental health, because we had the same thing where we had overhead programs or you know residential treatment centers, and some of them were small and some of them were big. But yeah, that's... That's who you. That's who you hired to have the overnight shift. And yeah, and then later, actually, during student teaching, I had the three to eleven shift, mm -hmm. and um, the group home gave me uh, some flexibility once residents were kind of getting ready to go to sleep to uh, to do my lesson planning and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And so, but I think that basically I was living with people with disabilities in community. Um, you know, for several years. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different experience than just showing up and seeing people at school or a clinic or something and then going. Yeah. So then I, you know, then I became a teacher, special ed teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, I was there at the beginning of the IDEA, yeah. um, whether it was, and of course then it was originally called the, um, the EHA, the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. Mm -hmm. uh, but, as you as you know, and probably many of the listeners know, that law passed in 1975, but it wasn't to be enacted until 1977. They gave them two, two schools two years to ramp up, and states two years to ramp up. And um, my first year of teaching was uh, the 77-78 school year. Mm -hmm. um, I started in January, but it was the 77. It was the very first year right. of the of the federal law being in place. I was a preschool special ed teacher in a in a rural, very very rural community. I didn't remember it was preschool. Yeah, preschool special ed. Um, we had some kids that were there for a morning session, some for an afternoon, sure. and some that stayed all day. Um, and I worked with a team a team there. And then I um, had two other teaching experiences. All these were all in New York State. Um, starting up in Plattsburgh the next year. The um, the first classroom, and it, again, this was during an era of segregation, particularly of people with severe disabilities. The first public school classroom for kids with what was then called severe and profound uh, disabilities. Mm -hmm. So I had kids with deaf blindness, kids with severe autism, kids with severe intellectual disability. Um, you name it, they were in there, and they were from five to twenty-one, mm -hmm. and it was in the wing of a vocational center, but it was a special ed kind of segregated setting. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the very first public school program, right. and the personnel preparation programs at that time didn't prepare you to work with kids with more intensive needs. Yeah. So, you know, I'm winging it, you know, based mm -hmm. on camping. Right. And, uh, well, it sounds very similar to yeah. camp where you guys were, it was just a community figuring it out. Yeah. We're, yeah. I mean, and you know, IEPs were brand new. So we, um, one of the things that I, I learned quickly was right across the lake from me here at the university of Vermont, there was a new federally funded personnel preparation right. program to prepare teachers to work with students who had severe and multiple disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so I got on the ferry uh, at Cumberland Head and uh, came across Lake Champlain uh, twice a week and during the summer 
um, over a year and a half period to, to get my master's degree mm -hmm. uh, focused on students with severe and multiple disabilities. And that was absolutely invaluable. Mm -hmm. um, and so was the master's program connected to the center? I know yeah. there was faculty that were- Absolutely, okay. yeah, it was connected to the center. Yeah. So that's how you became connected to us first. Yeah, that's how I got made connected to the center. But so I, you know, I taught and then uh, for a short time, I went down to Virginia, worked at the University of Virginia um, Children's Rehabilitation Center as an outpatient, uh, outpatient orthopedic clinics. Um, did some graduate work down there, did an EDS degree in special ed down there with some uh, wonderful people, but really talented, talented folks. And then went back to teaching mm -hmm. and taught in Ithaca. Uh, and then from there became a special ed administrator um, where I really got into desegregating some programs um, in Auburn, New York with a wonderful team of people there. And while I was doing that, I did my doctoral degree at Syracuse. And uh, when I finished, um, folks here at the center said, uh, we, we have an opening for a grant position. And... Uh, uh, we joke about it now, but I almost didn't get that job. Yeah. <laughs> Even though there were only two oh, applicants, I almost didn't get that job. That's but come I, up a few times. But yeah. I did get that job, and uh, that led to a 34-year career here. Yeah. But the, the thing is that the research that I ended up doing um, was all related to uh, challenges that I either encountered personally in 13 years of... of uh, working in the field or things that I thought were, you know, really holes in the, in the literature. Right. Well, and so that's, that's another big transition that I want to talk about was from teaching and administration to, to research. So that first grant that you came to, was that a research position or was it, were the, were the future projects that you, you worked on research? The first grant was a grant that was had been originally co-written by Wayne Fox, who was the longtime director of the center and Shaggy Cloninger, and it was a, a was a project to support students who were on the Vermont Deaf-Blind Register, what we now call dual sensory impairment, but at the time it was the Deaf-Blind Register um, in inclusive classrooms around Vermont. And I became part of the Vermont I-Team, and I served statewide supporting schools who mm -hmm. were working with kids who were on the register. Right. Now, for people who, who maybe are not in the deaf-blind or dual sensory field, people, not, people often think of like Helen Keller right. um, as a classic example of somebody who's deaf-blind. That was not the population that um, we were serving. The vast, vast majority of students, um, and there were only about, I think, 28 or 30 statewide mm -hmm. who were considered deaf-blind or at risk of deaf-blindness. They mm -hmm. met certain criteria. They, um, they were almost all students with quite intensive multiple disabilities. Um, very few had verbal language. Um, very few had the physical capability to use sign language mm -hmm. because of severe uh, orthopedic disability. Um, and so it was very difficult to really uh, fully know what their uh, cognitive abilities were. So, you know, we did what I think everybody at the um, uh, Center on Disability 
believes in, which is we made decisions based on the least dangerous assumption. Right. So we we approached everyone as if they were uh, cognitively capable because um, that was the least dangerous way to approach them. Right. Um, and we and so that led to um, the, that was a grant funded position, which was only going to last for three years. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could stay at the university was to start writing my own grants, mm -hmm. which I did. And um, that first grant was a model demonstration grant. And then I wrote a series of research grants and uh, model demonstration grants and training grants over the next 20 years um, to fund myself and others um, here. And that's where we started getting into some research and uh, um related services decision-making and paraprofessionals and service delivery and yeah that that's what got the ball the ball rolling right and i mean so and, and you talk about sort of getting into research because you needed the funding uh, in order to stay here and that's that was true for everybody but i don't think there were many researchers here there certainly aren't today right so there's lots of people that were writing grants but they might be a personnel preparation grant or, right. or so a training we, grant even when we were doing model demonstration grants um, I, I think that having gone through three graduate programs at Vermont, then Virginia, then Syracuse, I was exposed to a number of scholars who kind of socialized me to think that if I was doing something mm -hmm. that was useful or, or potentially valuable, right. um, that I needed to disseminate it, mm -hmm. and that the best way to disseminate it was, um, you know, through writing. Um, I was doing presentations as well, but through writing and through published research, um, I felt like I was in schools. I was doing. I had opportunities to do a lot of observing and collecting data, and I was trained as a single subject researcher. And I did single subject research in my early career, but mm -hmm. not here. Um, once I got into the schools, the nature of my research changed based on what schools would allow. You sure. know? Um, so a lot of the research that I did was descriptive research, mm -hmm. both qualitative and quantitative uh, descriptive research. And uh, some of it was a, a little bit of it was quasi experimental, mm -hmm. and some of it was evaluation research. Um, but we pretty much throughout all of my projects, we always took data uh, and we always shared it. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we shared, we ended up sharing things that we didn't intend, like the whole strand of um, the work that was done at the center. Uh, partially that I led on paraprofessionals in inclusive right. schools, we never had, we didn't start that with a grant on paraprofessionals. Right. That started with a grant on related services for kids with deaf blindness. Mm -hmm. And we ended up with a ton of data related to paraprofessionals mm -hmm. that was not part of our grant plan. Right. But I remember talking to the team and saying, I think we've got some pretty interesting stuff here and you know I think we should really analyze these data and it ended up with the publication of uh, a, an article called something like 
helping or hovering effects of instructional assistant proximity on, stu on students with disabilities. That, was, that sounds like the exact title. Exactly. It might be. Okay. It might be. It's it's something like that. It's pretty close to that. Yeah. It definitely starts with helping or hovering. Mm -hmm. um, but it was published in 1997 in Exceptional Children. Um, and that article turned out to be really a turning point or a demarcation point in the literature related to paraprofessionals. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's become kind of a seminal article uh, along with another one that came out of an early grant called Live Cottage On, right. Transformational Experiences of Students with Disabilities in, in Regular Classes. Uh, those both came out of early, early grants and early data collection. Yeah, well, I mean, so when I mentioned at the beginning, you know, some of the some of the things that I, I gained from our mentorship and, and that idea of research is communication mm -hmm. and sort of really like giving back uh, in a sense, because, you know, as you described in your own journey, and I don't think it's really changed much, you know, schools and, and different communities are left on their own. To, to figure things out and they might come up with amazing solutions that are exactly what they needed or they might really spend a lot of time reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that, you know, when you do something, you should share it. Um, again, my own, you know, whether it's more traditional or just different uh, experience in research was always, you no, know, you do research because it's almost like that's the widgets we create as <laughs> researchers um, or it's part of career advancement. It's something, it's a pressure uh, that you need right. to do. Um, and in sort of just a demonstration of your accomplishments in and of themselves, mm -hmm. as opposed to, no, it's a, it's a communication tool. It's, it's just a way of sharing. It's one of the reasons why um, in many of the articles that I wrote over the year, I tried to have some kind of catchy little subtitle or, or beginning, like helping or hovering. Right. People remember that, mm -hmm. or I've come to John, they remember that as right. opposed to some long academic title, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Precarious uh, or purposeful. Right. Is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, simple, not easy. Yeah. Uh, you know, just little phrases that, uh, because, you know, I was always really conscious of, I'm doing this because I'm trying to influence certain people right. to improve opportunities and supports for people with disabilities. So who's my audience? My audience, teachers, principals, special ed directors, to some extent, parents, um, so, you know, it was one of the reasons, it's interesting, I came out of Syracuse and for people that know higher education at that time, and this would have been in the, in the mid, mid 80s to the late 80s, um, Syracuse was a hotbed of uh, qualitative research. Some of the people who were writing the most um, like widely used qualitative textbooks at the mm -hmm. time Stephen Taylor, Robert Bogdan, Sari Becklin mm -hmm. were, were at Syracuse. Um, and most of my classmates there were on a qualitative track. Mm -hmm. um, and I was not. I was on a quantitative track, mm -hmm. um, which was different. But all of us who went to Syracuse were all exposed, at least at an introductory level, to right. qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, so I, I always saw the value in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I started really doing it, um, you know, more fully mm -hmm. once I left Syracuse. Uh, and my two most cited articles uh, ever, and 
uh, are qualitative, and mm -hmm. uh, a couple of others that are qualitative are also among the kind of most used. So, and when I when I look at it, and when I know about the feedback I've received from people, it's because people relate to it. They can see themselves, right. and they can see their own circumstance in the data. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I uh, saved very little from my office when I moved out. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I found tucked away in um, in a couple of journals were some letters that I had saved oh, wow. that I got after the I've Come and John article was published. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember one of them said, uh, a colleague was sharing some responses from some of his students. And one of them was like, I, I think you were, you were eavesdropping in my teacher's room because mm -hmm. I heard, I've heard people say the exact same quotes right. that are in your paper, you know? And um, the other one that, that I got um, from um, Bob Algazine, who is just an amazing mm -hmm. special education scholar and has been for decades um, down at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, mm -hmm. somebody who I, I respect so much. And so it was super meaningful for me to get a, a letter from that, him. He was the editor of Exceptional Children at the time. And he was talking about his own um, feeling that, you know, basically that inclusion was the way to go. And he, he's, he, I'm going to, I hope I can get this right because he made an analogy about swans and basically that, um, that, Citing a thousand white swans does not prove that all swans are white, but the sighting of just one black swan proves that all swans aren't white. Mm -hmm. And he basically was saying, like, your article, I counted John, um, uh, and I should say credit to um, Ruth Dennis and Chuggy Cloninger and Susan Edelman and Richard Chad, who were co authors on that article, um, that. Uh, that our article was like a black swan and, and it was going to disrupt things when people said, well, kids with severe, because it was about kids with severe disabilities. Right. Um, you know, people were saying, well, you can't include kids like that. You know, you can include these kids, but not those kids. Right. And, and he basically said, it's going to make it much tougher on people to claim that these kids can't be included when they, you know, read the transformations of the teachers in this, in this article. Right. And uh, so qualitative research, um, I mean, I've always liked mixed methods research, and um, but qualitative research, I think when done well, can be super powerful in telling the story and um, communicating right. to people in a way that sometimes when, you know, the statistics are really complicated, it's like, you, you and I have had this conversation many times, because yes. you know, uh, you're much more skilled at statistics than I am, and I'll be like Jesse. You got to explain this to me. You know, yep. I can't. I can't write about this stuff, and we got to translate this into language. We can put the statistics in, mm -hmm. but we got to put this in language that a teacher can understand and, and relate to. Well, yeah. I mean, part of it is explaining it. Part of it is it, it is the marriage of of both the quantitative uh, and and the qualitative. Because again, you know, my own background and this, I I, I feel like again, is also sort of values that I got from you that were, were just so helpful to me, is that having exactly the right statistical test for the specific situation that you're in is not necessarily the, the answer <laughs> that, that is needed to, for any of the goals that you might have for research. Uh, and again, 
often the sort of the, the advice that I was getting was um, just sort of research publication for its own sake is is a value mm. um, as opposed to you no know, a teacher might want to read this and and you know might see themselves in it and then need to understand what what do you learn what, well, what came from this what should one I do? of your one of your other mentors who um, we both love John Bircher mm -hmm. I remember so clearly early in my career here at the University of Vermont, and of course, for those who are listening and don't know John, he was a psychology professor mm -hmm. on the faculty here for many years, along with his wife, Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a lot of work around people with uh, both developmental disabilities and people with um, kind of serious emotional, behavioral issues and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And he always told me that this, the simplest statistic is the most powerful. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally as simple as numbers and percentages. Right. You know, and I think that that's true. Yeah. To go from, you know, sort of like the most traditional roots of sort of behaviorist principles, which, which people say are kind of stripping away all humanity um, of, you know, whether it's, whether it's in teaching, you know, or in, in clinical psych, which is my background. Both of you took that to like, what are the tools from, from those sort of quantitative and whether it's a single case or you know multiple folks for communication you know what, what is and, and, I, and I can picture the graphs that I created with you and the graphs that I created with John and it was really just to communicate there are things that are happening that are met, that you need to pay attention to yeah. um, but it's not the whole story right the, the real story is what does this person want out of their life there was a guy who was a part of the faculty that was working um, during the first summer program, his name is Mike, Michael Friedel, um, mm, okay. and he told me that he had some of the same kind of concerns, and he said that one of the ways that he was able to um, understand it better for himself was to think of these behavioral approaches as um, humanistic empiricism, mm. where you were pursuing humanistic aims um, but using empirically sound approaches mm -hmm. because you know like as a teacher uh, of kids that had more intensive need for example i had a student who had really really severe headbanging behaviors mm. i mean he would put his head through you know drywall yeah. um he had a, he had a kind of a permanent callus on his forehead from hitting his head he was a, in danger of concussion and retinal detachment all the time sure. and um, trying to help him reduce that through positive approaches positive behavioral approaches mm -hmm. as opposed to punishment right, right. negative kind of things was really important you know really important in his in his life and so I kind of reluctantly learned this behavioral these behavioral approaches and then i mm -hmm. went back into my classroom in the fall and i thought well you know i've, I've spent all this time learning this stuff i, I should try it out mm -hmm. so i wrote systematic instructional programs for my students iep goals and those kids learned more in the first two months um, than they had the whole previous year mm -hmm. and it was because we were using sound instructional procedures and uh, doing database approaches, database decision making, and so on. And then I was hooked. But when I always when I used it, and always when I taught the behavior analysis course, I think that the behavior analysis course that was taught 
um, here at UVM was different than a lot of what is taught in right. applied behavior analysis around the country. Mm -hmm. Because the idea that behavior analysis has a heart um, is not anything that we invented here. I mean, it goes mm -hmm. all the way back to Montrose Wolf, who was one of the key people along with folks like Donald Bear at the University of Kansas and a whole bunch mm -hmm. of others at the University of Kansas back in the 1960s and 70s. And he wrote a, an article about applied behavior analysis finding its heart um, in terms of uh, talking about social validity. Mm. And um, that's a classic in the field of applied behavior analysis. And you know what the way we taught applied behavior analysis here was two ways. One was there are certain negative um, you know, punishment, response cost, overcorrection. There are a whole bunch of procedures that we made students aware of, but we didn't teach or we didn't encourage them to use because we thought that using those um, approaches would interfere with them developing constructive relationships with their students. Mm -hmm. And if you think that a positive constructive relationship is the basis for a safe learning environment and a healthy learning environment, you don't want to do things with kids that are going to interfere with you developing that positive stuff. So we um, we just said, yeah, these things exist. They were used in the olden days. Some people still use them today, but we really don't encourage you to use these things. Yeah. We're gonna stick on all the positive stuff mm -hmm. and we're gonna talk about how we can apply these things in the most natural way. So people think, oh, ABA is only for behavior problems, mm -hmm. only for kids with autism. It's only, um, you know, this kind of mass trial, discrete trial training. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, it can be done in a very natural way, incorporated into the regular class. And in fact, I would argue that whether they label it as such um, or identify it as such, every parent on the planet and every teacher on the planet has used behavioral approaches. Uh, they may yeah. or may not use them systematically. They may or may not use them correctly. They may or may not label them. Right. But they've all used modeling and cueing and fading supports and providing different types of prompts mm -hmm. um, feedback. And, and, yeah. and feedback in yeah. terms of you know positive reinforcement or mm -hmm. correction procedures. I mean, it's just ubiquitous. You, it's not like behavioral approaches were invented. They're just really a description right. of what humans, how humans teach each other. Right. And then in applied behavior analysis, often you're exaggerating those or you're um, doing them very systematically mm -hmm. to try to get a specific behavior change. Right. But, they're, but, but they can be used extremely naturally mm -hmm. and um, often are by parents and, and teachers without even realizing what they're doing or naming it. Right. So... I, I worry sometimes that with people being attracted to ABA or repelled by it, mm -hmm. that the people that are repelled by it are focusing on the misuses of the tools. Yes. Um, the fact that it has been used, it has been used to in ways that harm people mm -hmm. um, physically or emotionally. It has been used to control people. Mm -hmm. um, inappropriately and still is it still is but it doesn't have to be there's right. nothing about the tools themselves right. that that do that you can also use aba procedures to improve someone's communication skills that encourage them 
to be able to self-advocate, mm -hmm. um, to open up opportunities for them uh, in work and recreation and communication and mm -hmm. all kinds of really positive things, you right. know? So, uh, and so I think that um, it's, it's too bad that it's so polarizing because I think if it's looked at in a particular way, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to deny that these are are legitimate strategies, mm -hmm. but it's how people use them and to what end they use them that is so, and that's where the heart part comes in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people think of uh, special ed or related fields as only about, you know, using research-based approaches, everything we do is rooted Mm -hmm. in a set of values right. and if it's not rooted in a, in a set of constructive values that that um, really support and and raise people with disabilities um, or others mm -hmm. then it's either not very useful or it could be harmful mm -hmm. so it, you always got to check yeah. the relationship between i think the values and the practices yeah, well, I, I agree with you because that's another thing that you taught me. Uh, so I remember uh, when we first started working together um, on, on on our research, and I, you know, I knew about inclusion and 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 and, and trying to help uh, students with disabilities and help schools um, keep the, the students with disabilities in the regular education classrooms. Um, and the more we looked into that um, as part of the numbers that count um, and Evolve Plus, um, and the more we were sort of pulling from the national data um, and thinking about research grants, um, and especially, you know, we, we looked at the Institute of Education Sciences grant, it really, it was all about academics. Like that's, that really has to be the end goal of everything. It's arguably it should be for, for education. And I remember the conversation, I was saying, well, okay, so we're focused on inclusion and they're focused on academics. So that's what we need to study. We need to demonstrate that students with you know higher levels of inclusion, or you know we can look at that, lead to better academics. And I and I love you just you you sort of stopped everything and said there's civil rights issues, uh, there's things that conflict with our values, and then there's research questions. And so like we're talking about behaviors and we're talking about research. This is this is one of the things I've taken is that it's these are tools in service of of bigger. Yeah, because I'm sure part of the conversation we had was that inclusion is not a research question. That was exactly whether, what you said. Whether yes. or not kids get included yep. is not a research question. An appropriate research question is around in what ways can we better, more successfully include mm -hmm. more kids with more diverse needs, right. uh, but not whether or not, because they are human beings yep. who deserve and have the right mm -hmm. to the same civil rights and opportunities as any other person. Yeah. So people that say, well, you know, we've done this study and inclusion doesn't produce this outcome, right. therefore kids should be segregated. Right. That's a, to me, that's a misguided yeah. thing. And if you look at the law, if you look at the federal law, it's rooted in values. Yes. It tries to mm -hmm. implement those values by asking right. people to use research-based approaches. Mm -hmm. But it's rooted in values. We're still not following nationally all the values that are embedded or enshrined in the law. And this is evidenced by the dramatic differences across the country and who's segregated and who's included. Um, and, and even kids that are, quote, included, 
we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not pretty. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's no utopias out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and and some of the, I mean, they're, they're not utopias, but I think some of the examples that you've shown me over time as we've been working in schools, um, and, and you would always say inclusion-oriented, right. like it, was, it was aspiration. And it really, it always came down to, it was a community of people trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, you can talk more about this, but I mean, a lot of the, the more recent work that you did was just how do schools do that given the environments that they're in? Right. So the resources that they have and the pressures that they're under and, you and they're know. under a lot of pressures. I mean, That's... I think that I think that what schools are being asked to do and, and what teachers and administrators do, frankly, I think it's harder today than it was when I was a teacher and an administrator. Because frankly, when I was a teacher, a special ed teacher, it was like the Wild West. Sure. You know, as long as like you know, nobody was getting seriously damaged, you know, like mm-hmm. just do whatever you're doing with those kids, you know, like right. nobody's complaining, we're happy, you know, that was kind of, it was, the, the expectations were so low, yeah. you know, and of course, part of that changed nationally with the, um, with the um, reauthorization, uh, I think it was the 97 reauthorization of IDEA, where we they put in the requirement for access to the general ed curriculum mm-hmm. because so many kids with disabilities were not getting access. They're still not um, in many cases. Um, so yeah, it's it's changed so much uh, over the years. That's mm-hmm. I mean, it's I don't think I've ever heard you say exactly that phrase, but I'm not surprised that which you phrase? Think, well, just that it's it harder today uh, I, to work in school. I, that's just this, my speculation as I you know because. Even though I, you know, I haven't been a classroom teacher or a direct, you know, um, service provider or administrator in a very long time, all of our research was in schools, you know, mm-hmm. and and interacting with teachers and um, and administrators and families and just seeing what what's happening, and you know, this leads to you know you you mentioned earlier of the phrase precarious or purposeful mm-hmm. it's one of the things that sent me on uh, um, along with you uh, on a path to look at service delivery issues because what I what I kept thinking to myself was I wonder if I could have been a successful special mm-hmm. ed teacher under these conditions because um, I would like to think that I was a successful special ed teacher in terms of my kids learning some things and and working with parents and so on. But, you know, you always think, I wish I knew then what I know now Mm -hmm. and like all the missed opportunities Mm -hmm. to teach kids certain things or to do certain things. And those kind of haunt you. But when I would see, you know, a teacher with, you know, a caseload of, you know, 18 kids and supervising five paraprofessionals and working across five grade levels um, with, you know, a dozen different teachers. And I think that's, it's impossible, you know, how, how, how can they do this work? And it's, and we have a huge turnover burnout problem in special ed. And And there's your answer. Yeah. A lot of them can't. Yeah. A lot of them can't. And so, um, you know, because you were part of this work, part of our um, work on service delivery was rooted in the idea that you can have the best staff, mm-hmm. you can have 
people that are really skilled and have great values and working really hard. Um, mm -hmm. And they might have good um, instructional approaches and even in sound curricula. Mm -hmm. But if they don't have a service delivery model in which to work that is conducive to them using those skills right. and implementing those values, realizing those values, it kind of is all for naught. Mm -hmm. But all of the federal funding is about curriculum and instruction and behavior support right. and almost nothing on service delivery. And to me, that's kind of the third leg of the stool that people aren't paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, the precarious or purposeful, as you know, is based on a, a we've got a cartoon that's in that article, mm -hmm. that's in the journal Inclusion, that shows um, a house and it's precariously on the edge of a cliff, overhanging mm -hmm. cliff, and there's a big rope around it. It's being held back from falling over the cliff by, a, by an army of paraprofessionals. Mm -hmm. and um, you know, it asks, you know, uh, on the brink, are you on the brink? And uh, problems with service delivery models. Because every year it seems like the pressures that schools are under financially and otherwise, they try to get as close to the edge as they can financially and uh, resource-wise. Right. And then any little yeah. thing pushes it over the edge. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is not where you want to live. Right. You got to live back here. How do we create models that live back, where we live back here and we move within a reasonable range? Mm -hmm. um, and that means reducing caseload sizes, re reducing the um, number of grade levels that um, mm -hmm. that special educators are working in, reducing the number of different teachers. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, we took existing data mm -hmm. from sixty-nine Vermont schools and looked at how that could be reimagined, reconfigured, so that it was real. Right. Uh, yeah, no new money. No new money. Right. Uh, and, you know, turns out, you know, you can have models of service delivery if you're proactive, mm -hmm. where you've got one special educator for every three or four teachers, hopefully all at the same grade level right. or at least contiguous grade levels. Mm -hmm. Now you've reduced the amount of curricular content that the special educator needs to be thinking about and responsible mm -hmm. to support right. with the teachers and reducing the number of teachers, which changes the communication mm -hmm. um, and embedding them in those environments. And that, you know, you can, you can do that by reallocating resources. Mm -hmm. Vermont, of course, has historically been extremely heavy on the use of paraprofessionals. Right. Um, and if you trade some of those positions, then you're going to have fewer people, mm -hmm. but you're going to have more highly skilled people. And that's nothing against the paraprofessionals. I mean, mm -hmm. they're um, a very important part of, of the school community. They work really hard, um, but it's not fair to them and it's not fair to students to treat them as if they are teachers. Um, they don't get compensated no. to function as teachers. Um, they're not trained most of the time. I mean, there are occasionally certified teachers working as paraprofessionals, right. but you can't count on that. Um, and what people fail to realize is that it's an equity issue for kids with disabilities. Yeah. If you don't have a disability, you get all of your instruction from a highly qualified, certified, licensed teacher. Mm -hmm. If you have a mild disability, um, if you have a specific learning disability, speech-language impairment, high-functioning autism, 
you are pretty likely to get the vast majority of your instruction from a highly qualified teacher and or special educator in combination. If you have a lower incidence disability, if you have an intellectual disability, if you have severe physical uh, and um, either sensory or intellectual disability in combination, any kind of developmental disability, you are very likely to get a very high percentage of your education from a paraprofessional who not only is not as skilled or trained as the teachers, but is substantively unsupervised. Um, and that's based on the data, and multiple studies uh, demonstrate that. And what people don't seem to recognize is that is a fundamental equity problem for people with disabilities, not, you know, because the mentality that that undergirds that is, do they really need a highly qualified person? You know, isn't it okay if they just have like a nice mom or dad who, you know, is willing to work for close to minimum wage? And, right. You know. Well, because that's not, that's, I think for most, that's not even how it's understood. The way that you're thinking about it is, well, we all have access to the teacher in the school uh, and, and you're also getting the support, but that's what the data showed is that's not what's happening. That's not what, yeah, that's not what the data shows for kids with developmental disabilities. Yeah. I mean, we have some, uh, we have some students who are getting 80 plus percent of their instruction from paraprofessionals and, and they're not seeing teachers hardly at all. Um, they're getting their first instruction, not, not just supplemental instruction, they're getting their first instruction from paraprofessionals. Um, and again, this is not a knock on the paraprofessionals mm -hmm. at all. They're being put in a very difficult situation. Yeah. And parents are being told, we're doing you a favor by, you know, and that's one of the other things that's really interesting over time, and it's just emerging, but it used to be parents always fighting for, I want my kid to have a one-to-one -one paraprofessional, right. right? I think some of the most knowledgeable and advocacy-oriented parents have realized that that's not the panacea to have an adult attached at the hip, an untrained adult attached at the hip, um, or a lesser trained person attached at the hip. They want their kid to have access to a highly qualified teacher and special educator and other service providers. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, so much of this, of this, of this work, um, you know, points to just how difficult, you know, parents and, and families have um, with what they end up needing to advocate for. I mean, right. if you're talking about, you know, programs that still do, you know, punitive and, right. um, behavioral discipline and, and electric shock, those programs are held in place by parents who feel like they have no other option. So it's not that they're thinking that this is what they want, but right. if, if they're not presented with a service delivery model that is healthy right. um, and sort of promotes the, those constructive relationships that you say are sort of at the cornerstone of, academic achievement and, and you know social behavioral success, Absolutely. then they're gonna go with what somebody's saying is, is a solution if the school's not offering one. And a lot of times in the regular schools, be, because the parents, and this is what parents have told me, mm -hmm. uh, many parents have told me, they're worried that their child will fall through the cracks or that they won't get what they need from the regular ed system because the service delivery model is not in place. Yeah, yeah um, see it happen. And so, they want the the kind of security blanket of that one-to-one -one paraprofessional as kind of this is somebody who's going to be watching out for my kid all the time mm -hmm. so it's very understandable 
Yeah. Uh, but to me, it's a symptom of a, of a systemic problem, uh, that a set of systemic problems that we need to address. And that's why, like, uh, the work that you and I have done in the last, particularly, say, 10 years, has really been focused on trying to uh, encourage people to look at inclusive systems of service delivery right. that are less reliant on care professionals um, and that, you know, really are there to support teachers and um, students with disabilities because special educators and others aren't there all the time. I've got so many other questions, and you gave such a good description of one of your cartoons. Uh, so that feels like too good a segue to, to let go. Uh, so to why cartoons? How, how did you get into that? We've been talking a lot about communication. That's obviously a very different communication strategy. A lot of people love cartoons, right? Mm -hmm. And um, some of the most popular cartoonists at that time were people like Gary Larson, Far Side cartoons. Yep. And so I would always look through We're his, really dating ourselves right now. Yeah. So other people are going to have to Google Who, who Gary Larson is. Yeah. He was a famous cartoonist. Um, One of the best. Uh, and a whole Far Side series. But he, um, I would go through his books and calendars and I'd try to find things that were related. And they were funny, mm -hmm. very creative and uh, excellent. And they were kind of tangentially related, but they were not like spot on. Right. And, um, and interestingly, there were education cartoons um, back then, mm -hmm. but many of the education cartoons made fun of students mm. and they made fun of parents or they made fun of teachers. Um, but uh, mostly they made fun of kids and parents. And I didn't want to do that. I kind of did want to make fun of us. Sure. Um, because I think of all of the ridiculous things that I've done in my own career and that I've seen well-intended colleagues do in their careers. Right. And so my cartoon series is, sub, is subtitled, It's Absurdities and Realities of Special Education. And I, I did want to poke fun at the things that we as professionals do, kind of hold a mirror up to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So at one point I started to have these ideas and I started to write down, you know, I started to draw out cartoons and the text and the and the images, um, but as you know, I'm I can't draw to save my life, so my cartoons did not look very good. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily, uh, I was already friends with uh, an amazing artist, uh, Kevin Ruel, who does all different kinds of art. Mm -hmm. He agreed to work with me, and he redrew my cartoons mm -hmm. and. You mentioned about communication before. Most people don't read journal articles. I mean, uh, a lot of professionals, if they're not in graduate school, if they're not in a master's program or some other graduate program, they're not like, of course, reading tons of literature, you know, where you're publishing your stuff. But cartoons, like, people will look at those and they'll also remember them. Right. You know, they remember the the image, even if they and and the and the meaning, even if they don't um, remember an article that they read. Right. Uh, so it was a, it was another way, you know, I always tried to have three or four or more different ways to communicate the same thing. So we'd have a research study, mm -hmm. 
then you know we'd have uh, what we back in the day called the quick guides to inclusion, which was a very non-researchy, teacher-friendly way of having like here's the ten most important things we want you to know about this topic, and then for each one of the ten things there was one page of text, mm -hmm. and it was purposely not researchy. It was purposely like talking teacher to teacher. Right. Um, so for research, quick guides cartoons on the same topic. So all the cartoons are either based on research findings mm -hmm. or topical issues in the field of, of education, special education. Right. And uh, so it was a, a way to, to communicate. And it was a lot of fun too. I mean, it was really fun working with, with uh, Kevin. And it was fun going from my office to colleagues' offices and saying, look at this one that we just want to read. What do you think of this one? And they'd be like, uh, not so good. Or, oh, that's a, that, that's good. You right. know, they, they vetted me, you know. It must have been so much fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and once they were done, uh, nobody wanted to publish them. Publishers were afraid of them mm -hmm. or didn't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. They would, they were worried that, uh, they would think that their publish, uh, their publication house was unscholarly or that I was unscholarly. Right. And they, so they were worried from like an image perspective that people, you know, be offended by these cartoons and kind of hope that some people would be offended. And some people were, mm -hmm. you know, some of them are a little, a little biting, yeah. you know, some of them are funny. Some of them are a little, they're all satirical. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just absolutely 100% truth right you know like yeah. with no creativity on my part at all that the, yeah. the one cartoon that's probably the most well-known and is certainly the most reprinted is the one uh, where um, it shows an image of a bunch of kids showing up at school on a snowy day and the school custodian is outside shoveling the stairs mm -hmm. and a student who uses a wheelchair for mobility is waiting to have the ramp shoveled, and uh, and while the custodian is shoveling the the stairs, the student asks him if he would shovel the ramp, and he says back to the student, "Well, you know, basically, what, when I'm done doing the stairs, then I'll do the ramp for you." Right. And the student says back to the custodian, "But if you shovel the ramp first, we can all get it." Yeah. And you know, and it's like clearing a path. Uh, for everyone, mm -hmm. right? That's that's the moral of it. And that was not my brainchild. I can take pretty much, the only credit I can take is putting it into the form of a cartoon. Right. Because that story was actually, um, came from a student with disabilities in Vermont and was part of a report that our dear uh, colleague, Deborah Lisi Baker, had included mm -hmm. in a report Right. Um, that was produced here at the center. And I saw that story and I asked her, could she get me in contact with the student? Because I'd like to make a cartoon right. about this. Mm -hmm. She got in touch with the student. The student said, yes, you can make a cartoon about it, but didn't want to be named. Mm -hmm. So I still don't know to this day who the student was. Oh, wow. But um, <clears throat> but I know that there is a student out there who's not, who's certainly an adult right. at this point of time, um, who is responsible for that story. And yeah. it says on the side of the cartoon, inspired by a student with disabilities. Right. But so a few of them are absolutely like 
-hmm. not made up at all. They're, right, right. they're just depictions of reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because it's literally right over your shoulder. Oh, oh I didn't know it was behind me. I was going to help you with that either word if you needed to. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, I, I don't think there's any debate, but it's probably one of the most recognizable things that our center's ever produced. I mean, I see it, I see it everywhere. Um, certainly around campus and people's offices that I wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, I see it pop up on Twitter um, from a group that I've never heard of you know, that have found it. So it's, um, again, you know, kind of can get back to communication and just, you know, sharing stories as ways of, you know, educating and influencing people. It's powerful. You, sharing cartoons is really, um, I mean, you can find dozens of them. There's over 340 plus of the cartoons that Karen and I have um, developed over the years mm -hmm. and you can find them in uh, all different places you know because you were in my office many times mm -hmm. um, I when I had an office here I used to have a shelf that included books where the cartoons had been reprinted That's right and it's interesting to me it was always interesting to me because I had a real hard time finding a publisher originally mm -hmm. for the cartoons um, even uh, academic presses that had published, that I'd published books with, right. didn't want to publish the cartoons. And it took a, literally a mom and pop um, publisher, very tiny publisher of Patrol Publications uh, in Minnesota to take a chance on publishing them. Mm -hmm. They ended up publishing four books of cartoons mm -hmm. and a CD, right. an interactive CD, which now nobody uses CDs anymore. What's a CD? Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, and then they they sold the distribution rights to Corwin, say a Sage Sage company, and then eventually they went out of print. The first one was published in 1998, um, which is a long time ago now. But they're out of print, but they're still out there and available. But they've shown up in the um, really unusual. Places you know you expect to see them in a special ed book, but they've shown up in um, you know books on universal design for learning. Mm -hmm. uh, the UDL community has really picked up on that particular cartoon, mm -hmm. but um, they've shown up in books about human diversity, uh, you know, intellectual disability, mm -hmm. law books, books of the, the American. Uh, Physical Therapy Association mm -hmm. included five or six of them in one of their uh, one of their books on school-based therapy. Uh, I mean, they, they just showed up in all kinds of places. So, and they're still showing up. Yeah, all these years later. Yeah, I think I think I'd like to wrap it up by saying um, we still have a lot of work to do. Agreed. Uh, to support individuals with disabilities and their families. And one of the things I always encouraged my students uh, and anybody that I work with professionally is to have a sense of urgency about this work because while we're kind of researching and debating about like what's the best thing to do, kids are growing up. Yeah. Families are dealing with stuff and um, they don't have the luxury of, of all of this. And so we need to, um, you know, do as much as we can to, to approach the challenges um, as quickly and effectively as we can. And I think that one of the other kind of general things that I always shared with my students are regarding any practice, you know, whether it's 
a paraprofessional providing lots of instruction or some therapy approach or whatever, is to ask yourself, would that practice be okay if the student didn't have a disability? Mm. And if it's not, you probably shouldn't be doing it, but it's a good question to be asking. Mm -hmm. I think also we need to be really continuing to um, be reflective and kind of hold a mirror up to ourselves because mm -hmm. a lot of things that get labeled as inclusive are not very inclusive. Right. Um, just physically having a student with a disability in a regular class is not inclusive, uh, I don't think. Um, and we're not gonna have time to go into all the definitions of inclusion or right. characteristics, but the point is that it's about belonging. Yeah, it's about well, it's about belonging, but there's there's a group of people that um, have created kind of a paper tiger where they mm. they want you to make a dichotomous choice. And they'll say, look, you know, we can include kids, but they're not going to get good instruction. Right. Or we can give them really great instruction, but the price of that is we're going to have to segregate them mm -hmm. to do all of our systematic instruction. And I think that that is a false dichotomy. I think it's, it's, it's a, not only is it an unnecessary choice, it's a bad choice. Because the only way people with disabilities are truly going to have the same opportunities and truly be included is if we say, you know what, you have to have both. Right. Um, having good instruction in a segregated environment is not acceptable. And being physically present and not getting good instruction is also not acceptable. We have to have a really higher standard in saying, People with disabilities have a civil right to be included. Mm -hmm. Now our job is to figure out how are we gonna provide them with high quality curriculum and instruction that they deserve and the supports that they need mm -hmm. in order to access that learning. That, that's where we should be focusing on, not this should we do it, should we not, you can have one or you can have the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that I wanna just challenge people to to think about that and also to know that for those of us that have seen this come from I mean, my earliest volunteer experiences were in institutions and, um, and then I kind of lived through the deinstitutionalization movement, worked in that and segregated schools toward inclusive schools. Once you have experienced an effective collaborative team as a as a teacher or a service provider or a family, right. once you've experienced that um, true collaborative uh, teamwork and you've seen the possibility of what actually can happen for, for students with disabilities when they are truly included and appropriately supported, mm -hmm. there's just no turning back. Right. Like you can't, you know, every once in a while I get in, I get asked if I'll do something for like a segregated school. And it's like, I know you're working hard. I know you're trying to do good stuff. I know you have mm -hmm. good intentions, but I can't bring myself to do anything that's going to strengthen you right. creating a better segregated environment, you know? Right. But once, you, once you've tasted it and experienced it, mm -hmm. there's just no turning back. So I, I really hope that, um, you know, the next generation, the current generation and next generations of teachers and special educators and related services providers, um, you know, do better 
got mm-hmm. get farther than, what, yeah. than what we've gotten because we've kind of ebbed and flowed mm-hmm. in terms of made progress and seen some backsliding. Yeah, um, and it takes diligence and it takes um, it takes uh, urgency. And as my very favorite coach, Marv Levy, former Hall of Fame Buffalo Bills coach, mm-hmm. used to say about winning, I say the same thing about inclusive education, which is that it's simple, but it's not easy, not always easy. And I think that that's true about inclusion. This is not rocket science. Families do this all the time. Yeah. Uh, families are the best models that we have uh, in real life for how you include Mm-hmm. really include someone who who has a significant disability. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not rocket science. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, but it's not always easy. Yeah. So well, I think that'll end there. I think that's a great way to end it. Michael, thank you for doing this and thank you for just all your support and mentorship over the years. I, 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 I've loved it. I've grown so much from it and, and I still am. I'm still learning. Me too. You've been great to work with. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You've been listening to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We've been talking and listening to experiences with disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. The music for our show is by Soul June, an audio library release. This show is a production of the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. You can find out more about the center by visiting go.uvm.edu slash cdci. Thanks for listening.